0: all right the evan bray show the round table of justice
1: well every monday at 10 o'clock we take an hour and we filter our way through we sift through whatever stories are in the news or things that are being talked about from a community safety from a crime and justice standpoint and in order to do that we bring in a couple of guests that have backgrounds and expertise to talking about these types of community issues. And I'm excited to uh, introduce my guests today to you. Tamara Cherry, born and raised in Saskatchewan, an award-winning journalist who spent the bulk of her career as a crime reporter in Toronto. Toronto Star, Toronto Sun, and CTV News in Toronto. She's a trauma researcher, an author, a podcast, podcast host. She's written a book called The Trauma Beat, a case for rethinking the business of bad news, and is the owner and founder of Pickup Communications, now living back in Saskatchewan, and joins me this morning. Thanks for being here.
2: So happy to be here. Thanks, Evan.
1: Also joining us today, Mitch Uzdebski, retired deputy chief from the Saskatoon Police Service. He spent 34 years with... SPS. he worked in canine homicide many years on the executive team there as well and currently now the executive director of the saskatchewan association of chiefs of police who provide leadership in policing community and in the province of saskatchewan working very closely with all levels of government on policing and public safety concerns mitch thanks for joining us Yes, good morning, Evan. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you both being here. So the, the, the whole focus of our talk this morning starts off with an article. And this was done by the Canadian press. So it was seen in, in a lot of different, um, used in a lot of different news stories and a lot of different papers across the country. And it's about the number of police shootings in Canada. And in the article, Tematope Oriola, who's a professor of criminology at the University of Alberta, president of the Canadian Sociological Association, says that the number of police shootings in Canada is spectacularly unrelenting. And really, the article focuses on the rising number of shootings. 2023, by the way, Canadian press found that police shot at 85 people in Canada in the year and 41 of them were killed. So what do we think? Do we think police shootings are at an alarming rate? Are they a problem in the country? I'll start with Tamara.
2: No, (laughs) no, that's not to belittle um, the loss of life. It absolutely isn't. Or the trauma that is left behind when somebody is killed uh, in an interaction with police or injured in in an interaction with police. Uh, Trauma on both sides, I'll say that too, Evan, because I know people who have been um, the subject of investigations where they fired their weapon on the job and it was it was not it's not something that any cop as you both know ever wants to do but i have so many issues with this article um first we're looking at police shootings from the last four years what happened four years ago the pandemic Mm -hmm. what is what happened during the pandemic Huge mental health crisis. I had a conversation uh, just last month. I was speaking with the executive director of Wounded Warriors Canada, Scott Maxwell. He pointed out that there have been 16 line-of-duty deaths for Canadian police officers since April 2020. 16. Mm-hmm. And he expects that to continue as we continue to face the fallout of the mental health crisis with policing. So there's so much that this professor... Leaves out by way of nuance and leaves in for red herrings. So we're not focusing on all the other things. Why are there more police shootings? Because there are more and more people who are not getting the help they need for these acute mental health crises that they are in. And this is not a failing of police. This is a failing of society as a whole.
1: Yeah you know, I think part part of the challenge is the complexity of what police are being asked to respond to. We For talk sure. about that uh, being an issue. And Mitch, just just that alone, I, as a police officer, we are seeing this certainly in, in our province, the types of calls that police are responding to, the prevalence of weapons, that absolutely is part of the narrative that we need to include when we're discussing this. Oh,
0: absolutely, Evan. You know, uh, just recently retiring from the Saskatoon police here in, in June. Uh, I, every day I would read the morning report and, uh, it's, it's unbelievable really how, how often and how frequent our members, uh, or police officers in, in Saskatchewan and, and across the country are dealing with weapons calls, firearms calls, and, uh, and so on. And, and it's a daily occurrence and a lot of these calls, uh, don't come in that way. They come in as a disturbance or uh, a mentally disturbed person. And and you know uh, Tamara hit the the nail on the head there. Really about uh, you know let let's look at just uh, 22 and 23. This was probably one of the worst uh, years in recent history for police line of duty deaths. And and many of those members were uh, uh, that were victims of uh, and died in the line of duty were were shot. Um, and the, the level of violence, uh, in this country is, uh, uh, now I think the recent statistics, uh, Canada, uh, numbers are from that uh we're at the same level of violent crime in this country since two thousand and seven, and that is also uh marks i think it was five percent increases in twenty two and six percent in twenty twenty one so we are going to uh to see more of these uh events i I did think uh that uh you know the the story that followed and and the statement was a little sensational and it really missed the mark in terms of not addressing the dangers that police officers face every day in this country.
1: So Mitch Zdebski, deputy chief retired from Saskatoon police service and Tamara Cherry, who is the owner and founder of pickup communications, my guests on the round table of justice today. So in, in fairness of, of ensuring that we're accurately reporting this, what I can say, and I did a lot of digging on this is the number of police related on duty deaths. Now there's importance in language, right? Mm -hmm. I'm talking on duty deaths different than murdered in the line of duty. So mm-hmm. on-duty deaths could include accidents and whatever. We are at a very high point in 2023. However, it's not unprecedented. In 1962, sadly, we saw high numbers of police officers being killed in the line of duty. Sometimes it was traffic accidents. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was at the hand of of people that they were trying to arrest. What I think we are seeing, though, is, and this is to Mitch's point, the, the prevalence of firearms and dangerous weapons being used against police and being used against society in general is so high now that it's changing and elevating the way police respond to things.
2: And it's not just the firearms, Evan. What has also changed social media? There are people with mental illness or without who are going online and being, becoming radicalized to certain views. There is a, a huge increase in the aggression shown towards police officers police officers are more nervous in their interactions with with members of the public although i i i'm not saying that you know they're they're shooting people because they're just you know in the moment they're just scared that's not that's not what i'm getting at but like it also speaks to the lack of resources for police one of the one of the um examples that that the author of this Canadian press story points to is a Vancouver police call where they were called to the Granville Street Bridge because there was a gentleman there who looked as if he might jump off the bridge that he that he might complete suicide and you know they're saying that when the police arrived this gentleman's demeanor changed and and he pulled out a knife I think it was and they ended up shooting him so I would I would call that probably suicide by cop, which is also very common. What they don't talk about in this story is, you know, did the police officers go in and say, hey, you, you know, get off the bridge? Probably not. Most police officers are very compassionate. People, hey, buddy, you know, we're here to help you. That's what that's what the training gets at. Did they have a mental health nurse anywhere in the vicinity? Probably not, because those mental health nurses don't go out with every police cruiser. Um and would this have ended up differently had it been a non-police officer that showed up somebody not in a, in a uniform who's to say? Mm-hmm. Because if this person was in a mental health crisis again, we are so quick to just jump to blaming police for these people dying when these problems are so much more complex and nuanced and by ignoring that we're failing like I said we're we're failing all these people who are dying, we're failing so many others.
1: Tamara Cherry, one of our guests today, a crime reporter, did much of her career in Toronto and now owner and founder of Pickup Communications and working back here in Saskatchewan. So, Mitch Yazdepski, I want to come back to you on exactly what Tamara was talking about. The challenge for police, and, and this gets into the conversation about why do police go to these calls in the first place if it's a person in mental health crisis, but the challenge for police is that when that call is placed, Often, number one, we don't know that that's what is at the kind of the soul of this, that a person might be struggling with mental health complexities. And the other thing is oftentimes there's an element of danger uh, that means police are the ones that are needed to respond to try and, and stabilize the situation. So can you talk about that nuanced balance that police have a very tough time navigating?
0: yeah you bet evan you know there's there's a lot of calls uh, and this article says the same thing about uh more training and restraint for for police and you know the reality is a lot of these calls come in as uh you know an unknown problem or a suspicious person and uh you know the police are are always going to be involved in in some of those calls Re- or really there's there's probably no uh you know path forward that doesn't involve police in some respect and and you know I have to like look back at a at a report I read from Vancouver uh police in in November of 2020 called community in need and they analyzed uh 265,000 annual calls for service and five percent of those calls had a mental health component of them and their analysis showed that 84 percent of these calls still required a police presence and interestingly enough 26 percent of those calls came from a mental health or health care professional so police have a role in this uh it's a difficult role uh police uh, are constantly uh looking at ways to to de-escalate their 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 take uh, courses of mental health first aid uh, applied suicide intervention skills training and you know just the nature of, of of police work is um there is uh we're dealing with people that are are, are suffering uh, all the time and please develop a, a very particular skill set in being able to bring down a situation and uh you know the the challenge really is uh as Tamara said um we we can't predict the outcome we can't pre- predict the behavior of uh, of the person they deal with and uh one of the things that I think, uh, you know, this article also loses sight of is these split second decisions by a police officer to, uh, save themselves or save another person. The lifelong of trauma that mm-hmm. follows that, uh, doesn't ever go away with some of these officers. They
1: That split-second decision changes their life forever. Mm -hmm. Talking uh, with Mitch Zdepski, the Executive Director of the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police, and Tamara Cherry, crime reporter and owner and founder of Pickup Communications. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to dig into the comparison. And I realize this is a very, it's a bit of a slippery slope and a tough Mm -hmm. thing to do, but the comparison of policing between Canada and the United States. Because if you look at... (laughs) Police involve shootings in the States. I mean, they have in, in some cases in a week or two what we have in Canada in, in a whole year. Now, on a per capita basis, I realize that kind of filters out a little differently, but we'll talk about that and much more in terms of community safety, including the inquest going on in the James Smith Nation incident a little bit later when we come back on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. All right. The Evan Bray Show. The Roundtable of Justice. Welcome back on the show today. We're talking about, first off, the report where an expert says the number of police shootings in Canada spectacularly unrelenting. This is Temetope Oriola, who's a professor of criminology at the University of Alberta. Part of an article that was uh, recently in a number of papers and uh, used in the news media over the last couple of weeks. Canadian Free Press put this story together so we're talking today with Tamara Cherry who is a crime reporter founder of Pickup Communications joins us in studio as is Mitch Uzdepski who is the executive director of the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police retired deputy chief from the Saskatoon Police Service so when we look at the number of police shootings where people are killed in Canada which in 2023 the number was 41 and we compare that to the number of people killed in the United States by police at 1,153, realizing there's a significant difference in population. Mm-hmm. What what does that tell us, if anything, Tamara?
2: Policing is very different in the United States than it is in Canada. Um, and it's not to say, oh, well, we only had this this many shootings compared to the U.S., so we don't need to talk about this. Of course, there's issues that we need to deal with up here um, as a society, but You know, one of the biggest challenges that I found when I when I was working in Toronto as a crime reporter, so many people in Canada watch American news Mm -hmm. and they assume that whenever there is a, a police shooting in the United States, well, that is how police would have reacted up here. Not true, especially when you get into a lot of these smaller sheriff's departments, their training is is nothing compared to what most police officers up here in Canada get. Sometimes when you go into these smaller departments, these officers are literally carrying their personal weapons as police officers. So you cannot compare the two countries when it comes to the stuff. It is absolutely apples and oranges. Um And I just, I wish that because to also, you know, when I was in Toronto, we would often compare our crime stats with Chicago uh, because it's a city of a similar size Um but you just can't you just can't do that because there are so many different issues on the other side of the border. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we we can be proud of the fact that our officers are much better trained up here than overall in the United States.
1: So staying on that theme, Mitch, you took uh, that executive leadership course offered through Boston University in Boston a few years back. And you would have been working like side by side with. Police leaders from all across the United States. Can you talk, just expand a bit more on your view on the differences to approaching policing in the United States versus Canada?
0: Yeah, you bet. Uh, I think some of the significant differences are already highlighted by Tamara in the, in the level of police training that we have. Um, but I think an, one of the other things that's really a noted difference and it doesn't necessarily apply across the entire uh, continental USA but uh, the level of oversight that we have in in Canada and our police agencies and and our governance bodies you know we all work for for local uh, police boards that provide us uh, governance but then we also have you know uh, in Saskatchewan for instance the uh, Provincial Complaints com, uh, Commission who investigates police misconduct uh, we have the uh, Saskatchewan uh, now serious incident response team that uh, investigates uh, any type of serious incident where where someone dies at the the hands of police or are seriously injured, uh, I know their mandate's actually expanded a little bit uh, for interpersonal violence and some of those other things. But I think that's one of the the most substantive differences. And and it was surprising how many agencies in in the United States were under something called the federal consent decree. And and that was agencies you know as as large as uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I think. Uh, out uh, mm-hmm. in in either Spokane or or uh, somewhere else uh, uh, on the West Coast, uh, there were, you know there was another police agency, and and I think these are are agencies that uh, over time uh, eroded uh, the public confidence, eroded, and and the federal government stepped in and and took over them to mm-hmm. manage things like training and and policy and and governance and so on. So I think in Canada um you know i've i've traveled the world too here in in a couple of programs in policing uh through some uh police leadership opportunities i have and and canadian policing is regarded uh, along uh, around the world as as uh, likely the the best uh, policing in the world
1: Seattle is actually, I think, another city that was under a consent decree uh, that you're talking about, Mitch. And right. I, you know, I even think about the need and ability for police in Canada to report on things like use of force. Mm-hmm. We report on it more than once a year in Saskatchewan through the Saskatchewan Police Commission, and even that level of accountability looks so much different. So there's lots more to unpack before we leave this topic on, on police shootings. I think this next question, and it's going to have to be when we come back, it really lends itself, but Tamara, I'm going to start with you when we come back. Around, do we see equal, fair, and balanced coverage of things like a police-involved shooting? And and where, what I mean by that is, I'm not necessarily pointing a finger at the media. Mm-hmm. What the media will report from po- the police.
2: Point a, point a finger at the media, well, Evan. it's but, okay. But
1: the, but the, you know the way I see it is when when the media interviews police, police will report on the facts. But the media will also interview family, friends, and community who report on emotion and feeling and speculation and perception and a whole bunch of things that really stray from the facts. So we are going to take a quick break, but we're going to come back and we're going to start there. Tamara Cherry, crime reporter, founder of Pickup Communications, and Mitch Uzdepsky, executive director of the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police. My guests today On the Roundtable of Justice, you're listening to 980-CJME and 650-CKOM. The Evan Bray Show, the Roundtable of Justice. On the Roundtable of Justice today, we've got a couple of guests that have joined us once before each separately, and today we've got them together. Mitch Uzdepsky is the former deputy chief of the Saskatoon Police Service, retired now, and executive director for the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police. And Tamara Cherry, well-known crime reporter, did much of her career in the Toronto area, working for CTV News in Toronto, along with the Toronto Star, Toronto Sun, and now owner and founder of Pickup Communications, does a lot of work and based right out of Saskatchewan, so it's nice to have you back in the province. So I want to start, Tamara, with you on the notion of, we're talking about police shootings. A recent article highlighted the fact we had 41 fatal police shootings last year. Now that compares to 1,153 in the United States, stark difference between the two. Another challenge when it comes to, this isn't just for police shootings. This is sometimes just how police respond to calls, Mm -hmm. use of force is the way in which they're, they're allowed to speak about it. Police often you will see, will give facts and information, but usually no speculation. Mm -hmm. There's not not a lot of that, not a lot of gray. It's usually just black and white, the Mm -hmm. facts from police. However, on social media, and even through mainstream media, when you're talking with families and friends and community members, you get something completely different. That's a very tough thing to navigate in, in media in general in terms of how it causes people to perceive the police.
2: And there's a huge difference between facts and emotion, Evan. So I was just chatting with you off air about this one case uh, in Toronto. And this this is just so typical of how many of these things roll out and how they're covered in the media and, and why it's so problematic. So there was, uh, there was a case in Toronto where there was a young woman who was in a mental crisis, a mental health crisis. Her family called police to their 15th or 17th floor apartment. Um, the woman had a knife. Uh, police knew that when they were responding and, you know, something happened inside that apartment and the woman ends up falling to her death to the, to the ground below within. Less than an hour, I would say. Whenever it was, very, very quickly, uh, a family member of the woman was on Instagram live talking about how police just murdered my cousin. Look, there's her body behind me. They've murdered my cousin. This turned into a huge movement. There was a, there was a lawyer that was hired by the police or that by, sorry, by the family, human rights lawyer that very irresponsibly had a news conference and demanding answers in this. I, I don't remember if he used the word murder but very inflammatory language. Meanwhile, Toronto police, their hands are completely tied because the Special Investigations Unit in Ontario has invoked their mandate. Police aren't allowed to say anything about the call that involved this woman's ultimate death. Months and months later, after there had been thousands of people marching through the streets, after police had been called murderers and everything, and let's, let's also point out that this was in the aftermath of the George Floyd actual murder right. in the United States. So, of course, emotions were high. But months and months later, lo and behold, the SIU investigation comes out and there was a there had been a sergeant on scene that was specially trained in mental health response. Um, the woman went out to the balcony and police were trying to talk her down and, it, you know, is lengthy conversations, all that stuff. And then the woman either fell to her death when she was trying to move from one balcony to another or she jumped to her death and police were not even on the balcony with her. So the facts were completely different, but the narrative as as, you know, as we were chatting offline, it, it, that does not make French page news when that, when that ultimately comes up, not only that, but with social media now, people are, everybody who sees a police interaction, there's always somebody in the crowd that has their, their vertical cell phone video rolling and police aren't going to be releasing their body cam footage right away because there's so much red tape involved in that. But you know that cell phone cam is is going to the news tips in boxes of all the newsrooms in the city and it 's ending up on social media and suddenly it is how could police use this brutality when we know nothing of the context outside that ten second clip so i 've got huge problems with not only social media but the way that the the mainstream media actually um, reacts to that because I actually think there is a lot of irresponsible reporting around that. You
1: know, and, and how do you counterbalance that? I mean, I, I look at it from the point of, you know, I'm quite proud of our news team here at the radio station. I think we've got a great group of people that, that every day are trying to bring the true full complex view of the story to, to air. So Mitch, you know from the police standpoint knowing that when an incident happens you're stuck to reporting the facts and often can't even comment if it's under investigation by SIRT for example is the is the goal then outside of a crisis or outside of an incident to try and help build perspective and understanding to people I know SACP does a lot of that work through the efforts that you do year-round
0: yeah you know it's uh the police in, the, in this province, in this country, really strive for transparency. And, and we have to balance that too with making sure that anything that we put out in the, in the public domain is factual. And, uh, you know, I get often disappointed here, especially in the, the days of uh, Twitter accounts or I guess X as it's known now or some of these other social media platforms where, where political pundits and, and other people are very quick to put something out that is not factual. Uh, that potentially supports uh, a political position that that they have, and and it's harmful. It's it's harmful to uh, uh, the investigation. It's harmful to the community. And as Tamara said, you know uh, there was a, a protest in in Toronto based on on information that wasn't factual. So we have a responsibility in placing to make sure that anything we do put out is factual and accurate however investigations take time they don't uh, happen overnight and and uh you know anything we do put out has to be factual and and yes and to today's example police in in this province now are also restricted in what they can put out in terms of uh some of these investigations now that search is the lead agency
1: Mitch Zdebski, retired Deputy Chief from the Saskatoon Police Service, and Tamara Cherry, crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications, my guests today on the Roundtable of Justice. So going on all last week, all this week, and actually much of next, is the inquest into the killings on James Smith Cree Nation and Weldon. We know that in Saskatchewan an inquest will be called by the Chief Coroner when someone is killed while in police custody or as a result of police actions. This is different, though. This is one of those discretionary inquest that Clive Wayhill who's the chief coroner of Saskatchewan decided to call based on the fact that it was important it was in the public interest that people could understand what unfolded there and just give better meaning and and ultimately I think healing for mm-hmm. communities and for a province that is trying to heal from one of the biggest tragedies that we've seen in a long time. Tamara what do you think is the value that comes. There's lots of heartache that comes with an inquest, but there's value built in there as well.
2: What you just said about healing, Evan, I think is so bang on. Uh, A trauma survivor once told me, and and she's also a mental health uh, professional, I should mention, that trauma is the absence of a narrative. It is the not understanding what happened, why did this happen, all that stuff. So answers are very valuable. You know, you you know, Mitch knows, I know because I work with homicide survivors all the time. One of the most frustrating things for survivors and for investigators is that survivors can't know everything. Maybe they'll never know everything, you know, sometimes when there's not an arrest, but they won't know everything or even close to everything until a trial, and that's really hard. There was a really poignant moment, and I'm, I, I have not been at the inquest. I've just been following it in the news co- uh, coverage last week um, when the inquest was addressing the death of Earl Burns, who was the school bus driver and who had uh, gotten in his bus. Uh, he, he had attacked Sanderson, and he had gotten in his bus to try to drive Sanderson away from his home, where I believe his grandkids had been in the basement. And Earl Burns was sitting dead in his bus while police officers passed by several times. It didn't stop. To check in the bus and or maybe he was dying in the bus at the time and there was a really poignant moment when um a woman asked one of the police officers you know why didn't you go why didn't you stop and police were saying you know this is a very flu- uh this is a very fluid situation we didn't think that that was as high priority as this and this what was going on but then when the police officer realized that the person who was questioning him uh when when she told him that she was earl's daughter The police officer broke down saying that he had planned to be at the funeral, but couldn't attend because he got Mm COVID-19. What a beautiful moment between these Mm -hmm. two people. Um, Like for me, seeing that, it's like that in in and of itself gives a value to this inquest, not to mention so many other changes that could come from it.
1: And part of that, Mitch, too, is what we see in inquests. I've sat through a number over the years. I know you have as well it is an opportunity for the public to see the human side of policing. We often think about policing as a profession. We think about it in terms of stats and numbers, but these are women and men in our community that are going out and doing this. And I think an inquest, when we hear the testimony of officers like we have this past week, uh it really does lean into the human side of our profession, Mitch.
0: Yeah, you bet. You know, I think uh this is a public interest uh type of inquest here uh, a little bit different than what we might uh, see otherwise um, and a little different than the one that's uh, going to be coming up uh, uh, for uh, uh, when Miles Sanderson died in, in police custody uh, as well. But uh, I, th- I think this is an opportunity to give some closure to to family members to understand the length that uh, police went to to uh, try and apprehend uh, Miles to to fully understand what uh, police were dealing with it, you know it was uh um you know one of the uh, probably the largest mass murderer in in our province's history if if not uh um you know when, uh, ranking right up there nationally as well here too so i think it does uh allow the community to see the the human side of of, of policing uh to see the the raw emotion of uh, people that were involved in in the investigation and to you know, potentially see what, uh, um, what, what was involved in the investigation, the length that people went, to, uh, on this file.
1: Mitchy Zdepski and Tamara Cherry, my guests. We're going to take another quick break when we come back. We'll stay on the James Smith cremation topic. An inquest always results in recommendations from a jury we've got a, a jury in this case they have six people selected two alternates standing by in the case they need to substitute one in and part of it is the jury will make a recommendation of it could be a list of things that could be done to prevent this similar thing from happening in the future. And although the inquest isn't over, I think already what we've heard and what we know of the incident, how it unfolded, there are some things that I think we can surmise will come out of this potentially in terms of recommendations. I'd like to get both of your thoughts on that when we come back with the Round Table of Justice on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. All right. The Evan Bray Show. The Round Table of Justice. It's always amazing to me how quick these hours go by. A couple of great guests today. Tamara Cherry, crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications, and Mitch Yazdepski, executive director for the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police. Join me on the roundtable of justice. Just before the break, we were talking about the James Smith Cree Nation um, inquest that is going on in Malfort. It went all last week, this week, and likely a good chunk of, if not all, of next week as well. Part of an inquest is to determine what happened, um, understand how people died, inform people of the circumstances around the death, educate the public about dangerous practices, and find ways through recommendations that we can avoid similar deaths from happening in the future. So, Mitch, I'll start with you. There will be recommendations that come from this. Knowing what we know about the James Smith Crenation and Weldon incidents, what do you speculate some of those will be? I think one of the
0: things that, uh, going to get a lot of attention here is, uh, why Miles Sanderson was allowed to be on statutory release in the first place. So I think the jury is going to, you know, pay particular attention to that. And, and I think what is also evidence and, and some discussion about is, uh, you know, the ability of, uh, the, the police to respond. So perhaps a little bit about, uh, proximity to policing or, or, on reserve policing or uh, uh, um, what what that might look like. And I think also, you know, in this case, we saw a significant number of public alerts, and some of this might have uh, been in response to the mass casualty inquiry out uh, on the East Coast, but uh, we're likely to see some, some discussion or some recommendations
1: around that. Tamara, any thoughts on recommendations we might see?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with everything Mitch just said. The, the recommendations I'm most looking forward to, and I think will definitely come out of this inquiry and be helpful for not only Saskatchewanians, but all of Canada, I think are going to revolve around trauma and how we address generational trauma, uh, childhood trauma, and how do we take care of people who have endured trauma to make sure that, you know, they can grow up to be healthy, healthy contributing members of society because we've heard a lot about the psychopathy of Miles Sanderson and you know Mitch just mentioned should he have been on statutory release well and, and what sort of services was he getting when he was in prison or in jail when he was incarcerated i think there's so much discussion that will come i'm hoping will come out around that and and you know this we're talking about this this is a mass casualty inquiry Every single one of the lives that were lost leaves their own ripple of trauma through the community. And this is a small community. How are we going to take care of all the people, all the children who have been traumatized by what happened there and in the months that have followed to make sure that they grow up and can lead happy, fulfilling lives that that's the stuff I'm really looking forward to
1: Mitch back to you just 30 seconds uh incidents like this and especially going through an inquest it will also help the RCMP and other agencies involved in their kind of look back on on what unfolded and maybe make some changes that that they see need to be changed in terms of service delivery
0: yeah you bet you know it's an opportunity to to reflect on what went well and and what uh could have uh could be done differently uh, in order to improve that level of service if, if necessary.
1: Mitch, really appreciate you joining us. Mitch Uzdepsky, Executive Director for the Saskatchewan Association of Chiefs of Police. Thanks for taking some time for us today.
0: Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having and me again, Evan.
1: Tamara Cherry, crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications. What's your website if people are looking to connect with you?
2: Pickupcommunications.com. It's
1: that easy. Tamara, <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming in. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks for having me. Roundtable of Justice. Every Monday, 10 o'clock, we take a deeper dive into topics that are community safety and justice related. And we give you an opportunity to hear from a couple of experts. And I very much appreciate both Tamara and Mitch being willing to join us today. You're listening to The Evan Bray Show on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.